Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We're so glad that you're here with us today. And today's conversation is led by Sissy Brady Rogers. And the conversation is called Love, Meaning, and Hope. Enjoy. So we're going to answer this question together. What does God work... Mm, child. What does God works all things together for good mean to you? Enjoy. There we go. Hey, hello, New Abbey. Good morning. Woo! Party in the house, all 10 of us. It's a good time here at New Abbey, Pasadena. Well, good morning and welcome to the fifth month of the pandemic. (laughs) Um, Today, we're talking about suffering, love, meaning, and hope, which I think in the midst of a pandemic is probably a pretty good topic. So um, I wanted to begin with this idea of what is the good that God works all things together for, because this passage or this verse comes in the middle of a really important scripture that talks about suffering. And it's a beautiful scripture that really, I think, speaks to this idea we've been talking about in the past few months as we looked at the Lord's Prayer, um, where we say, your kingdom, or as Corey talked about, your reality come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the question of what does that look like during pandemic times? Like, what is, where is God in the midst of a pandemic or in the midst of social upheaval around systemic racism? Where is God in the midst of a cancer diagnosis? All these questions that are just part of everybody's life eventually. And so my own journey with this was, as I've looked back, I really understand it to be that I projected onto this God, father God, parent God, all of the unmet needs of my childhood uh, for safety, for love, for protection from anything bad happening. And compared to my family of origin, uh, actually, it worked out pretty well for some years. You know, I, I feel like when I became a Christian in junior high and had that born-again experience and then kind of immersed myself in faith communities uh, through high school and college and into my young adulthood, I really felt like, wow, it really makes a difference. This born-again relationship with God in Christ was transformative in my life and gave me a sense of love and support and care and mental and emotional health that I didn't get in my family of origin. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't have a lot of mental illness in myself and struggles as well, but I I saw my trajectory being toward health and well-being. Um, And then at age 30, I was married just... uh, a couple years, three years married, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it rocked my world. And uh, until that point, I had been immersed in a, and I remained immersed in a community where a big part of our spiritual life was praying for healing for people. How many of you have been in communities like that where praying for healing was a part of it? And you know, if you've been around that, you're like, and not everybody gets healed. 
you know? And it's like, how do we make sense of that? And I had seen healings, you know? I, my husband, Dave, had had carpal tunnel syndrome starting. And on one of our Wednesday night prayer services, he had prayer and it was healed. And he never had that symptom or that issue come up again. It was kind of, it was miraculous. So when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, it was like, huh, okay, I want to be healed. You know, I want divine healing. And yet at the same time, I had this huge doubt in me, like, you know, I've got a tumor in my breast and how is God going to do that? So I had to hold this tension of hoping and believing that God would heal me miraculously, but then proceeding through the medical treatment that was being recommended. Um, but at the beginning of that was just an upheaval of anger, frustration, and like, what the F? You know, truly. And so I remember a day or two after the diagnosis, Dave had gone to work, and I was sitting on my sofa, and I'd been praying that morning, and I just, I began pouring out my heart to God. And just, I am, I can't believe this has happened. And, and I started connecting with not just my own suffering, but all the suffering that I knew. I was working as a therapist at the time, and I was working with kids who'd been abused, as sexually abused and molested as children. And, you know, little tiny kids. It was like, and I, I was waking up that day to uh, this intense feeling inside of myself about how, how, how disordered the world was, and that my own cancer diagnosis at 30 really kind of did that. And I remember I got so, I stood up and I was like, rawr, rawr, rawr. I was, you know, going around the living room just like, rawr, rawr, and I was mad at God. And, and I said, it's all effed up and I hate it. And I hate you right now, God. And, and I, and then I was like, ooh, I just said F to God, and I said hate to God, and I was like, you know, kind of went, oh. And then I realized I was just exhausted, and I sat down on the couch, and I was just like, oh. And in that moment, it's like I sensed God saying, I know, sissy. I know it's effed up, and I hate it too. I was like, whoa, God? And thus, the rest of my life, I've thrown the F-bomb around very freely, because if God can say that, so can I, right? Okay. Anyway, um, that's the backstory to why I have the mouth I do. But there's this moment of intervention, like this spiritual moment. God says to me something that the God that I was learning about in, in my church life would never have said. So at that point, it started to lead me into my own deconstruction of all of it. And what is prayer? And how does God work in our lives? And what does it all mean? And so I've been on a 28-year journey with my deconstruction. And I'm so grateful because now I get to bring that to New Abbey and to people who, if I had had me when I was your age, wow, that would have been so cool. Somebody who's walked the path. And the good news is that I'm not the only one. We have other people in this community. We call ourselves the falling upward people. We think that's better than the second half of life or the people that are closer to death group. <laughs> but we're getting together weekly to share our stories and talk about how we're in deconstruction and how we want to be a part of helping our community. 
We want to be a presence for our community as we all deconstruct and reconstruct and remain faithful to this God of love that we've heard about and we've fallen in love with and fallen in hate with at times. Um, So into this reality of suffering, my breast cancer, um, your struggle, Britt, with, you know, depression and anxiety into... um, you know, the suffering of people in our community for being gay or trans or uh, black or brown, you know, there's so much we all have been through. God has a word. And what is the reality that God speaks into this suffering? And this Romans 8 passage, I think, is a a beautiful expression uh, of what this big reality wants to come into our lives. I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Stop. So one of the things I realized as I came back to this passage that I've been praying through and looking at for 28 years, I was taught in my seminary training and in my Bible studies that we go to Scripture and dissect it and analyze it and parse the verbs and figure out what exactly did it mean. Right? You know what I'm talking about? And if you just could figure that out, then you could solve your problem. I could stop snorting coke while I'm in seminary. That's a great thing if I could just understand this. It didn't work. I had to go to therapy. Um, But the point being that instead of looking at this passage to dissect it, I think what God invites us into, and when we read scripture, is it's to expand our consciousness, to think of scripture as expansive and and, 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 and big, because the reality that we're talking about with God and the gospel is enormous. It's mysterious. It's beyond understanding. So when I read this, it moggles my mind, not so my mind will try to figure it out, but so that my mind will open up and recognize God is so much bigger. And I'll never be able to wrap my mind around a lot of what I read in Scripture and if I can, it means that I've made my God too small. Side note. Yeah, you can clap for that. <laughs> we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we are saved, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Again, oh my gosh, mind-blowing. 
We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to become conformed to the image of God's Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom God predestined, God also called. Those whom God called, God also justified. And those whom God justified, he also glorified. Oh my gosh, how many seminary classes, you know, did I spend where they were like, and predestined is, and you'd spend like an hour And you'd be like, really? Oh, my God. It's meant to expand us, not not shrink us. Suffering, pain, and love. There's people who say, and I just read this in a Psychology Today article, that suffering is optional. It's actually a Buddhist idea that's made its way into a lot of psychology. And that, that pain is real, that pain is actually the physiological and emotional activation of response to trauma, to stress, to our environment, to things that are not okay. And that suffering is like when we fall into a rut of that pain and we can't get out. And the thought is that over time that people can develop the the skills and the coping capacities and maybe get on medications or do whatever they need to do to actually achieve this place where we don't have to suffer. And I don't believe that's true, actually. And I'll be saying a little more about that because I believe that if we are living fully open with an open heart, if we're not shutting down our consciousness, we may be able to manage our own pain and learn how to process and deal with ourselves, but then we open our eyes and we see a video of a man with another, his neck on another, his knee on another man's neck. We see pictures of children starving. I mean, it's suffering. And there's that beautiful spiritual that says, or that as long as any one of my brothers and sisters is suffering or enslaved or in bondage, then I can't be free either. The family of God that this scripture is talking about when it says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. We are the children of God that the world is waiting for. The people who can bring love and bring a steady, strong, sturdy presence into the world. But if we have our own trauma in our past that hasn't been healed, we are going to be reactive. And we are either going to fight, flight, or freeze. That's what our neurology teaches us to do in the light of suffering if we don't have the skills to respond from a calm, centered, grounded place. So there's a, there's a teacher, Jim Finley, who talks about suffering this way. He talks about Horizontal suffering, which is the circumstances of life, that there's always going to be suffering in the world. And, and, and sometimes there'll be suffering in our individual lives. And that's just always going to be a part of it. But then he talks about vertical suffering. And he says that the vertical suffering is when we forget our belovedness, when we forget our identity as love. Created by love, for love, to love. Love is our inherent nature. 
And yet when we get pulled away from that, we lose. That's where suffering comes in. And I love the story for this morning's interesting person with Brit because that's what she's talking about. When we can restore I am, I am loved, it changes everything. And this is the opportunity of our faith, that there is a love that is beyond human love. And all human love will eventually fail. Everybody who has loved us and loves us deeply will somehow betray us, abandon us, wound us, piss us off to no end. And we will maybe even hate them. How many of you have hated people you love? I hated Dave at times. I hated my mom at times. Richard Rohr says this, All great spirituality is about what we do with our pain. If we do not transform our pain, we will transmit it to those around us. So the call and the invitation is to not deny our pain, resist our pain, uh, make light of it with those um, in our conversation group, like, okay, what is the good? That, That panacea that you, all those verses that get thrown around in Christianity where, well, you know, you've got cancer. Well, God will work this for good. And I'm like, yeah, F that. I, I don't, that doesn't make any difference to me now. I'm suffering. I need your empathy. I need you to connect with me and acknowledge that this sucks, right? Eventually, maybe I'll be able to see that. So there's this beautiful place where we talks about we know the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now and not only the creation but we ourselves have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption the redemption of our bodies groaning is a very powerful expression of pain how many of you were taught to groan in your sunday school class Okay, children, you're all feeling a little sad today. Let's all just groan. Ah! How would that be a great intervention? You know, to teach people to express our pain and our sadness and the embodied nature of suffering and pain because that's where it lives. It lives in our bodies. There's this beautiful uh, teacher, Barbara Holmes, and she has this quote about the pain and the suffering of the Africans when they came, they were white colonial people who also had trauma. How does anyone that isn't traumatized and in fight, flight, or freeze go and steal people from a country, put them in chains, and take them across the waters and put them to labor? Like, what? What? This was trauma. People shut off, shut down, unable to live with open hearts. That doesn't excuse it. That's what we're all suffering from today. A history of what uh, Resma Menekin says, racialized trauma. And I'll get to that in a minute. But here's what Barbara says. On the slave ships, the moan is the birthing sound, the first movement toward a creative response to oppression, the entry into the heart of contemplation through the crucible of crisis. This idea of contemplation is really about connecting to love. That when we're talking about contemplative practices, 
to contemplate is to take a loving look at your life, to be able to be so filled and connected to our source of love that we can look at it with, with, with love. But Barbara's quote, if you can put it back up there, that the moan is the birthing sound, the first movement toward a creative response. It's the first movement. We've got to groan. And in her book, she describes she describes the brother and sister stacked under the ship, rolling with the ship and moaning. Ugh, I read that and I felt the suffering. So we have to learn how to face our own trauma in our bodies. And that is the way we find safety in our body. So that when the other, whether it's my husband, my mother, or a person that is wired into my brain that says I should be afraid of, because that's what racialized trauma in the body is, according to Resma Menachem. It's that we've all inherited this history that I need to be afraid of the other, the person that's the, not the same skin color as me. Powerful truth that we biologically have that response and it starts in our bodies. And so to heal it and to come to a place as individuals and as a country where we don't respond out of reactivity, we have to work with ourselves and our physiological response pattern to fight, flight, and freeze. So Paul talks about us as the children of love, the children of the shalom. We are the ones that are going to bring the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And the freedom of the glory of the children of God, the people who've been so touched by God's love that we are changed, we then bring that change into the world. That we become the people who can stand in love as a steady, stable presence when all hell is breaking loose around us. I don't know how to do that. Sometimes I can do that. Other times I can't, but it's something I'm working on through my spiritual practices and through therapy. Always a shout out for spirituality and developing your spiritual practices and for therapy. So this capacity to be the shalom, the peace, the right relatedness of God in the world, it's what Jesus talked about when he said to love your, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, when he talked about giving up my possibility of having it all so that all may have. The rich young ruler, sell all you have, give it to the poor and follow me. I'm like, right? I don't know how to do that yet. I'm working on it. But it's the invitation that we are called to be that. So Menachem, Resma Menachem, has this quote. He said, while we see anger and violence in the streets of our country, the real battlefield is inside our bodies. If we are to survive as a country, it is inside our bodies where this conflict will need to be resolved. And then he's referring to his book, which actually, Frankie, can you guys or somebody put this, the names of these two books in the uh, Zoom chat? Um, all of the practices foster resilience in our bodies and plasticity in our brains, which is the brain's capacity to uh, carry a lot of complexity. Uh, Dan Siegel, a, a, a neurobiologist, psychologist says that 
Mental health is the ability to hold the complexity of all the opposing forces within our brains at once. So the quote says, all these practices foster resilience in our bodies and plasticity in our brains. We use these practices to recognize the trauma in our own bodies, to touch it, heal it, and grow out of it, and to create more room for growth in our nervous systems. Powerful, powerful possibilities if we are willing to do the work uh, with both our family trauma, our social traumas that we've gone through, but also this bigger trauma that we're all a part of. And this book, My Grandmother's Hands, I highly recommend it. I've only begun to listen to it. I've heard him uh, on Bean on an interview, and he's, uh, he's a powerful voice for our times. Um, so the question and the opportunity um, that we have as people, as the children of God, the children of love, is to say, how in my life during this crazy pandemic time can I open up to this work of being transformed? How can I engage spiritual practices to, that will help deepen my connection to love? And, you know, Britt uh, Brit Barron, our own Britt Barron, her book comes out in nine days. She sent out an email this week, and if you want to get on her email list, find her on Instagram and sign up. But she had three practices I'm like, beautiful spiritual practices, because people scare and run away from, ooh, contemplative practices, scary, scary, you know, because it's associated with mystics and people sitting in cabins for years by themselves, and most of us are not going to choose that path. Well, one of her spiritual practices for the week was you're, you're, in, your, you're in your living room, and you're just chilling out in your living room, and suddenly... A hundred golden retriever puppies who've all been potty trained and don't bite come running in and jumping all over you and licking you and loving you and giving you all the love and you're just filled with love. That guided imagery might be a spiritual practice you could use. That idea that it doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't have to be sitting under you know, a, a bush meditating for hours. Maybe you love to walk in the forest. Maybe you love to create art. Maybe you like to surf. Maybe you like to build things out of wood. You know, things, prayer is that which frees us from all of the hubbub of the world around us and the, the, the toxicity of our own mind. It's that which gives us this gentle focus and relaxation in our bodies and in our minds where we just let go. And I know some of you are thinking, hey, Netflix and beer. No, not really. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hate to blow your bubble. Entertainment and kind of self-care recreation is different from spiritual practice. And that's another conversation we could have. But if you're interested in talking about spiritual practices, I'm available. I am now the care pastor, so you can email me, sissy at New Abbey. And I'd love to sit with you and talk more about what that might look like for you. Um, I think the person that came to mind as I was preparing for today about who is somebody who demonstrated this great capacity to hold the tension of all these opposing forces, someone who had suffered himself or herself in ways that 
seemed beyond human capacity. And I thought of Nelson Mandela. And many of us know the story that he was imprisoned for 30 years because he was protesting apartheid in South Africa. 30 years in a seven by eight cell, many of those years he wasn't even allowed any contact, even through letters with people. But he came out of that and he didn't repay evil with evil. He worked for the good of that country. And what was the good and what is the good? I believe the good that God wants to work is that we might be conformed. If we look at that passage, that we would be conformed to the image of his son who is love. So here's my version of this passage. We know that all things work together for good for those who love love, who are called according to love's purpose. For those whom love foreknew, love also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family of love. For those whom love predestined, love also called. Those whom love called, love also justified. Those whom love justified, love also glorified. What Jesus, what God wants to do with us in the midst of our suffering, our pain, our disordered ways is to deepen our connection to our belovedness and and enable us then to be the love that the world needs, that we can stand up against injustice, that we, and not in a reactive like, oh, kill the police. Like, that's not really helpful. I understand, though. We have to go through the anger because you have to hate your enemy before you can love your enemy. And we deny anger in the church, so we can never get to loving our enemy if we don't acknowledge that they're the enemy. My mom taught me to hate the enemy. I told her I hated her, and it was okay. We worked it out. So the invitation is, where in your life do you need this love? And it's this love that I think is going to give us meaning and hope. Meaning and hope are hard to find when you don't know a deep sense of your own belovedness. So where in your life do you need to experience that love? And as we go into our conversation groups, here's the question. Where in your life do you need love, meaning, or hope to be revealed? Enjoy your conversations. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.